0: Hello and welcome to A History of the United States, episode 107, The Interministerium. Our last episode was a busy one, in which we really mixed things up. Rather than looking at how unorganized the British were on the northern frontier in North America, we looked at how unorganized they were on the western frontier. The frontier was disintegrating. All along the borders of Pennsylvania, Maryland, and Virginia, which led to a radical transformation in Pennsylvania, in particular, as the Quakers withdrew from public life, leaving Benjamin Franklin to take leadership of the anti-proprietorial faction. We looked at why things were going so badly for the British, in particular, at how Loudoun was alienating American support. This took us to the end of 1756, and caught us up with events in London, where Newcastle's ministry had fallen and Pitt had taken control under the figurehead ministry of the Duke of Devonshire. We'll begin today by zooming out and looking at the big picture again, as the war unfolded across the globe in 1757. Remember, the Seven Years' War can be broken down into roughly four separate conflicts. The French and Indian War in North America, the Pomeranian War in North Europe, the Third Silesian War in Central Europe, and the Third Carnatic War in India. We'll start with Prussia, who had launched the war in 1756 with their successful but costly invasion of Saxony, and in retaliation The Austrians had partially reoccupied Silesia, which the Prussians had taken from the Austrians in the War of the Austrian Succession. Frederick of Prussia began 1757 by moving southwards out of Saxony and into Bohemia, where he won a great victory against 60,000 Austrians in the Battle of Prague. But he suffered significant losses and didn't feel strong enough to storm the city, instead putting it under siege. Another Austrian force then moved around and cut off his supply lines, leaving Frederick in a tricky position. He decided to attack the second Austrian force near Cullen, which resulted in a bitter defeat with the Prussians losing 14,000 men, nearly half of their force. Frederick was forced to withdraw from Bohemia. This was only the start of the woes for the Prussians. As the Austrians forced them into a retreat in the south, the French began an invasion of East Frisia, with the support of the Reichs army, the official army of the Holy Roman Empire, which essentially meant a collection of the forces provided by Austrian-friendly German states. Meanwhile, the Swedes prepared for war in the north, hoping to retake Pomerania from Prussia, as they had lost it at the end of the Great Northern War in 1720. And then there was the Russian threat, as storm clouds gathered in the east. Meanwhile, an utterly bizarre situation was occurring in Westminster, even for British standards. For this to make sense, we need to look at the circumstances of Pitt's rise to power. Newcastle was Prime Minister and needed support in the Commons, so he allied himself with Henry Fox. Newcastle became increasingly unpopular, and Fox resigned. This allowed the Ministry of Devonshire to form, with Pitt in control behind the scenes as Southern Secretary. However, Pitt was handicapped by two main problems. One, his closeness to the Leicester House faction, And the future King George III made King George II hate him. While Parliament was the senior partner in government, the monarchy was not unimportant. Then there was the added complication of Newcastle. Newcastle had been in politics for the better part of 40 years, and had a formidable political network. Even out of office, many in Parliament took Newcastle's opinions into account. Pitt's policies had, therefore, remained largely similar. He remained committed to funding German states to defend Hanover. He refused to commit any British troops to defend it. Prussia was to fight the war on the continent, while the strength of the army and navy would be increased, with the intention of Lounden leading a march on Quebec. A home regiment was also raised, which, interestingly, Edward Gibbon served in as a captain. Yes, that Edward Gibbon. As soon as Pitt did something King George disagreed with, specifically suggesting clemency for Admiral Bing in April 1757, Pitt was thrown out of office. Fox and Cumberland planned for Fox to step in as Prime Minister, but this needed the support of Newcastle, it were going to happen. Newcastle didn't particularly like Cumberland. Remember Cumberland's disastrous plans for the North American campaign in 1755, think back to episodes 101 and 102, and Newcastle didn't forgive Fox for his betrayal in 1756 that ended his own government. The result of this was a three-month period where the UK had no government, Horace Walpole dubbed it the Interministerium. Between April and June 1757, Devonshire presided over a caretaker cabinet, while Britain had no government, not because of political or policy differences – they were all Whigs – but because people didn't like each other. King George wanted Newcastle and Fox to control the government – But Newcastle wouldn't work with Fox. Newcastle wanted to be back in government, but wouldn't return until the royal family stopped feuding and the King and the Leicester House faction reconciled. Pitt, the darling of Leicester House, would only return to government on his own terms, which neither Newcastle nor the King could tolerate. Fox just wanted to return to power, or take money. Britain didn't do anything in the war, for three months, while Frederick was fighting in Bohemia and was begging Britain for support. Finally, at the end of June, Pitt and Newcastle were able to come to an agreement. Newcastle would take over as First Lord of the Treasury and would have control of patronage and financial affairs. Meanwhile, Pitt would return as Southern Secretary and have control over policy. Holderness, a friend of the Duke, would return as Northern Secretary. Fox was made paymaster general of the forces, a politically irrelevant position that came with a big, fat paycheck. A trade-off Fox was pleased with. It was a fairly balanced ministry, with numerous players left out of the game, such as the Grenvilles and Townsends, allies of Pitt, and Newcastle's ally Lord Halifax. News of Frederick's defeat and withdrawal arrived in Britain on the very day that the Pitt Newcastle administration was formed. Now, in the summer of 1757, the British were in a position to actually do something. What great force would they send to defend their ally Prussia? An armada? More finances? A grand armée? no. None of those. They sent Cumberland. No soldiers, just Cumberland. Cumberland was to take over the command of Hanover's forces, and was empowered to take decisions he thought were prudent and necessary, even to make a separate peace for Hanover if required. Frederick suggested that Cumberland launch an attack against the French and the Reichs army, but he was outnumbered two to one, and so he took the defensive. The French pushed him back, and then cut him off from his supply route to Britain. Within two weeks of the French attack, it looked inevitable that Cumberland would surrender, particularly as his negotiating position would weaken the longer he waited. Frederick despaired. He lasted until September 8th. Trapped between the Alla and Elbe, with no hope of resupply, he negotiated a surrender with the French commander, He would return the German allies to their homes, those soldiers that were from Gotha, Hesse and Brunswick. Half of his Hanoverian troops must retreat beyond the Elbe, and the other half remained in French internment camps. Cumberland found the peace agreeable, but in Westminster it was humiliating. Hanover, except for a small neutralised zone, was occupied. And the French could focus on Prussia. Cumberland returned to Britain. His father, the king, said to court, here is my son, he has ruined me and disgraced himself. Cumberland resigned his military commissions and for the time being will exit our narrative. This was a highly significant moment in the course of the war. With Cumberland and Fox now out of the way, Newcastle was in complete control of affairs, and Pitt was in complete control of policy. This can be seen in retrospect as the turning point of the war. Pitt certainly liked to claim that later in life, but for the moment it seemed like yet another disaster. While Hanover falling out of the war was a blow for Frederick, it was just one of many to occur in the late summer and autumn of 1757. The Swedes finally launched their invasion of Pomerania with nearly 20,000 troops, and then there was Russia. An army of 75,000 soldiers had been gathering and finally launched an attack on East Prussia, claiming a victory at the Battle of Gross-Jegersdorf. But the Russians then pulled back rather than take Königsberg. Although you may not recognise that name, it's now known as Kaliningrad, and is part of the Russian Federation. Specifically, if you look at a map of Russia, you'll see a small enclave of land not connected to the rest of Russia on the Baltic coast, nestled between Poland and Lithuania. That's Kaliningrad. If you'll allow me to go completely off topic for a moment, the story of Kaliningrad is rather interesting. I've always found it odd why there was a bit of Russia not connected to the rest of the country, but until recently never particularly questioned it. I suspect a lot of this has to do with my age. Having grown up in the post Cold War world, I always think of the Baltic states, Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania, as distinctive countries rather than Soviet socialist republics. At the end of World War II, Koinsberg. Was claimed by the Soviets and was annexed, but Stalin made the interesting decision to transfer the territory out of the Lithuanian Soviet Socialist Republic and into Russia. Some suspect this was to further distance the Baltic states from the West, which makes sense to me. The Baltics are a very sensitive area to Russia. Russian action in the Ukraine today is intimately connected with the Baltic states joining NATO, after all. Anyway, it, Kaliningrad, as it is now known, was connected to the Russian administrative system rather than Lithuania. This wasn't particularly noticeable during the era of the USSR, but once the Soviet Union fell apart, it left Kaliningrad as a Russian enclave, and a peculiarity on maps of Europe. But anyway, that is, after all, wildly off-topic. The Russian army did not attack Königsberg, but instead withdrew. This was due to supply issues. Russia is huge, a fact that often comes up when looking at Russia's defensive capabilities, but comes up less often when looking at its offensive capacity it requires extremely long supply lines to support an army in Prussia from Moscow, and so while a 75,000-man army within Prussian borders sounded horrific, in reality Russia had expended its energies for the year. This is where we're going to leave Frederick for the time being. Hanover has surrendered and is occupied by the French in the west. In the north, the Swedes are invading Pomerania, In the east, a large Russian force is looming menacingly, and the Austrians are working on a counterattack in the south. Things were not looking good for the British and Prussians as the winter of 1757 approached. But there was good news from India. The war had not begun well for the British in India. The Nawab of Bengal had attacked Fort William, the base of the British East India Company in Calcutta. Since then, a counterattack had been launched by Lieutenant Colonel Robert Clive, the Deputy Governor of the East India Company's base in Madras. Clive had managed to retake Calcutta and then pushed on to take the whole of Bengal. It was a positive, but India was, at least at the time, viewed as the minor theatre in the war. The main events were Europe and America. Next time out, we'll return to North America and follow the campaigns of Loudoun. Thanks for listening.